Hello again, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History Comics Podcast, this time for the life of Jackie Orms, the first black female cartoonist. Throughout chronicling the history of comic books and their creators, this podcast has highlighted how hard it is for both black and female creators to originally break into the industry, so a black female creator to do so would be especially difficult. Nevertheless, the first that did so, Jackie Orms, not only broke in but blazed the trail for all to follow, despite her race or gender, as Orms was not only an innovator in the comics medium, but its outside licensing and merchandising. Jackie Orms was born Zelda Marin Jackson on August 1st, 1911. She grew up in Mongolia, a Delaware Indian name uh, for the river with Sliding Banks, Pennsylvania, which described as a rather monotonous, as she said nothing ever happened there. Her parents were William Winfield Jackson and Mary Brown Jackson. She had one sister, Dolores. Their father, William, was the proprietor of an open-air theater that was situated on a vacant lot and in good weather, would set up a giant screen to show silent movies. Their mother, Mae Brown, raised them to be polite and Baptist, though she set aside time and materials for art and music, which both girls pursued. Sadly, their father, William Jackson, died in 1917 in a car accident. Their mother, May, would later remarry to Porter M. Simmons in 1918. He was the leader of the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal AME Church. There, Jackie and her sister took part in the choir as their stepfather was renowned for their, his beautiful tenor voice. Dolores eventually became a singer herself and signed with Decca Records, where she specialized in tort songs, a name that Jackie Orms would later put to use in her later career. Dolores would later settle in Durham, North Carolina with her husband, Murray Marvin. Growing up, Jackie Orms and her sister, Dolores, were light-skinned enough to pass for white, though they still experienced racism when people discovered they were black, including Jackie Orms losing a job when her employer discovered this. It was a lesson that Orms would later apply to her comic stories. From an early age, Jackie Orms was a budding artist, with her mother chiding her over using up all the papers and pencils in the house for her drawings. Bars of ivory soap would even disappear, as Orm liked to use them to practice carvings, but her sister Dolores remembering her carving a rickshaw at 10 years old, which she polished with a smooth cloth to give the appearance of real ivory. The family would later joke that Jackie never needed art lessons, as she could do it already, and it is true that she never benefited from, from a formal art education. Jackie Orms would study English for four years at Montegolia High School in 1926, developing an early ear for language from reading the poetry of Coleridge, Shakespeare, and Matthew Arnold, along with the romances by Hawthorne, Cooper, and Sir Walter Scott. This education helped hone Orms' writing skills, allowing her to never have to use a writer on her own later comic strips. In 1929, she was recognized in the high school's yearbook, The Flame, a year before she was a senior and tasked with producing art for it. It was in this yearbook that Orm's earliest known cartoons appeared in the 1929 and 1930 yearbooks with caricatures of figures at Monagolia High School. One in particular was MHS 1930 Funny Side Up, which was a self-portrait of a high-heeled, perfectly coiffed young woman with the caption, Last Minute Champion of 2007 Z. Jackson. Orm's also provided poetry in association with her, with her picture in the French Club. While still in high school, Jackie Orms would write to Robert L. Vaughn, publisher of the Pittsburgh Courier, a black newspaper, several times for a job. Her persistence paid off as Orms was able to get a few reporting jobs under Chuck Washington, the paper's sports editor. Her first assignment was reporting on a boxing match, after which Orms developed a great love for the sport, despite the, the sweat, smell, and blood that she experienced. 
After graduating in 1930, Jackie Orange moved to Pittsburgh to work at the Courier full-time as a proofreader while doing freelance reporting, though none of the stories he provided would have her full name in the byline, as a female sports reporter at the time was still frowned upon. The experience would provide ripe stories for her future comic books, though. It was around this time that Jackie Orms met her future husband, Earl Carl Orms, a divorcee several seven years her senior. They would marry in 1937 and stay together for 45 years until his death in 1976. Jackie and Earl spent their first years together in Pittsburgh, where he attended the Pittsburgh School of Banking while working for the Steel City Bank, while Jackie continued to work for the Pittsburgh Courier. They would have one daughter, Jacqueline, who sadly died when she was three and a half years old from a brain tumor. Reportedly, it was this tragic death that made Orange no longer wish to have children, not wanting to experience the pain again, with some even arguing Jackie Orange replaced her with her Patty Joe characters in the comics. In 1937, Jackie Orange started her first comic strip with Torchy Brown and Dixie the Harlem, while Storker working at Courier as an assistant proofreader. The first strip appeared on May 1st, with the series being about a southern girl from Mississippi who moves to New York City and hosts of working at the famed Cotton Club, mirroring the real-life experience of many blacks at the time during the Great Migration, when six million of them moved from the South to the more perceived less racist North, along with hopes of better economic opportunities. Orms had never been to the South, have only read about it, but the theme of black people leaving the racist South or slightly racist North was a common one in both fiction and the real world, and Jackie Orms would incorporate these themes into her strip, even hinting that Torchy's mother is the famed singer Josephine Baker, or at least her profile bears a striking resemblance to her. The comic strip became known for dealing with some risky subjects, like prostitution, in which Torchy is mistaken for one when she arrives in the city, and even whether Torchy, who is light-skinned, should try to pass as white. In one strip, she debates whether to follow the colored arrow at the train station or the white one. Orms drew Torchy with a pen and ink in clean, crisp lines. Jackie Orms' technique for composing a construct was to come up with the words first and then pencil the sketches on a Bristol board, a type of paper that uniformly absorbs ink. Afterwards, she would ink her sketches with pen and ink. She particularly became known for her crisp, authoritative lines, which became her signature style, and Orms balanced this with clean, clear white spaces. Finally, she was finished with a zip of tone shading for texture, with the final inking coming in when she lettered by hand. As with many comic strips, the tight deadlines resulted in a lack of proofreading, and she would sometimes have to reuse humor sequences and art to meet them. Once everything was finally finished, Orange would mail off the finished strip to Pittsburgh for publication. The name of Torchy was likely a reference to the Torchy Blaze from the 1936 film Smart Blonde, along with the Torch songs of her youth. It was midway through her run on Dixie and Harlem that her name Zelda Jackson Orms appeared with the comic. The strip would later become a big hit and would be reprinted in the 1950s, though she abruptly quit the career in 1938, ending the strip on April 30th, and would not return to comic books until 1945. The reasons for her quitting, Torchy Brown are unknown, though records show that it was time with her contract at the Pittsburgh Courier ending. Plus, Jackie and her husband Earl had decided to leave the Pittsburgh altogether. In early 1938, the Orms relocated to Salem, Ohio after the bank Earl worked for went out of business, and this is where the fa- his family lived, with the world's parents and siblings living with them for a time. Jackie Orms would eventually need another location, though, prompting their move to Chicago in 1942. There they settled in Brownsville, a prominent black community that was considered the second largest in the United States at the time. 
Thanks to his administrative and banking experience, Earl became a manager at the Disabled Hotel and assistant comptroller of the Supreme Life Insurance Company, one of the leading black-owned companies in the United States. Ten years later, he was managing Sutherland Hotel, one of the classiest hotels in the area, and had previously been off-limits to black customers until the owners saw the financial potential to catering to all races. After pumping $300,000 into modernizing the building, they placed the control of the hotel in the Earl's hands, which is now a small city complete with a drugstore, beauty shop, and clothing store, along with regular appearances of popular entertainers at the time. Earl and Jackie would move into the Sutherland in 1952 themselves. While in Chicago, Jackie Orms took classes at the School of Art Institute of Chicago and would later draw a parody of herself getting schooled for believing she was naturally talented. By the 1940s, Jackie Orms befriended Margaret Burroughs, the founder of the Disabled Museum of African American History. She would later focus on her home and working in the newspapers, believing her talent lay in making people laugh, and she was uh, about to have an opportunity to do just that. In late 1943, Jackie Orms approached the Chicago Defender, one of the nation's leading black-owned newspapers, where she was hired as an occasional reporter and writer. For seven weeks in the spring of 1945, she offered Social World as Zelda J. Orms, a woman's column mostly dedicated to the comings and goings of fashionable people in the area, along with promoting community affairs. One notable story is when Orms attended the debutante ball of Miss Lorraine Hansberry, who was then just 15 at the time, but would later write the classic play A Raisin in the Sun 15 years in the future. It wasn't just the social gossip that the social world commented on, as Orms also used her comments to support the Double V campaign, which called for defeating the, the Nazis overseas and racism back home during World War II. On April 21, 1945, she dedicated her column to the death of the President of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in which she cited his widow, the First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, and used it to call for women's rights. Orms would also report on racial events and found as a woman she could charm her way into places men couldn't. For example, she was able to get the bailiff at the court to read the docket to her and got, got her to write in to observe the cases. Of note, Jackie Orms would be the subject of a secret FBI investigation over her alleged ties to communism. While it is true that many black activists aligned with the communists due to their group support of racial causes, that was about as much as many went, and like many, Orms would state she distanced herself from communists after learning of their overall worldview. Orms was a member of the NAACP, and she did use her comic Patty, Joe, and Ginger to push political causes, such as attacking racism and the House Committee on Un-American Activities, HUAC for short. For example, in one Patty Joe cartoon, the title character attacks her friend Benji for pulling the wings off flies, mostly the left ones. This was enough for the FBI to produce a file on her, which was titled Subject, Zelda's Jackie Orms. Orms would be approached for an interview by the FBI in 1952, where she affirmed her statements about working with communists and racial causes, but disagreed with her other views. The FBI would eventually give up tracking her in 1958, finally realizing she was not a communist agent, as she has stated numerous times. The irony of all this was that apparently the FBI never read her cartoons but suspected her over a political rally she attended which had the links to a communist party. If they had read their cartoons, they would have noticed that Jackie Orange was taking her talents into a decidedly political direction while still maintaining its adventure and humor. One such cartoon was Candy, which debuted on March 24, 1945 in the Chicago Defender. It was a single-panel cartoon about a wise-cracking housemaid and it was placed in the editorial page of the paper. 
While you never see Candy's master, it's heavily implied she's white, especially since it ran alongside columns attacking black wages in white households. The name of the strip and the character came from Jackie Ormson's husband, Earl, who upon seeing a drawing called her Candy after her appealing looks and his sister-in-law, Emma Candy Orms. It was considered a soft edge for the time, though it attacked subjects like black marketeers and hypocrites. Orms used zip-a-tone shading to give a smooth effect to the character, who was noted for her uh, beautiful body and long legs. Reportedly, black servicemen overseas enjoyed the strip candy, and it gave them something they could look at. It was a taboo at the time for black men to oogle drawings of white women. Like a lot of her characters, Jackie Orms used herself as a model, as she was an attractive young woman and even painted a nude self-portrait that she had hung in her own bedroom. She especially loved giving her characters different clothing and shoes to wear as well. Candy was eventually replaced with a Jay Jackson single-panel cartoon after July 21st. In addition, Orms probably ended the strip because she claimed that she was never paid for it during its four-month run. It didn't help the Defender decided to move to more adventure strips over commentary. Nevertheless, it was this move that led Jackie Orms to leave the Chicago Defender and return to her old employer, the Pittsburgh Courier. Orms returned with an 11-year run and 500 cartoons of Patty Joe and Ginger for the Pittsburgh Courier. About two sisters, the younger Patty Joe, who often made wide-crashing observations about her older teenage sister Ginger, whom Orms previous, who, like Orms' previous candy, had a pinup look that many male readers enjoyed. Orms was able to get away with Ginger's pinup appearances by keeping her chasing the hands off in the comic. The strip ran from September 1st, 1945 to September 22nd, 1956. With this cartoon, Orms made sure she owned it, which would, she would greatly great benefit from years later. It would run in 14 papers from coast to coast with over 1 million readers. While a standard comic strip, Orms still worked in some social commentary, rifling on everything from the Supreme Court to the atomic bomb. The characters of Patty Joe and Ginger were modeled after herself, and she would even help design the Patty Joe jaw, an innovation of merchandising that Jackie Orms would soon blaze a trail in. So to help support herself on the side, Jackie Orms formed Jackie Orms Features Enterprises to get into freelance work in 1945, such as doing cartoon and gag ads for hair products. Orms first experimented with paper dolls, appearing in the December 1946 magazine, before deciding on an actual one based on Patty Joe, designing a clay doll with six articulated parts. Orms would state the idea came about when she wanted to create a role model for black children to play with, as she observed black children playing with white dolls, and it looked like they were training to be nurses. She thought her Patty Joe character would be perfect as well, as her spunky attitude made it an ideal character for children to play with. To do so, she contracted with Violent Grandwall, owner of the Terry Lee Doll Company in Lincoln, Nebraska, who had previous experience producing black dolls with Bonnie Lou and Benji, along with other ethnic dolls like Guadalupe and Nanook. Gradwall was also one of the earliest to try the new material plastic for creating dolls, which had arrived in the 1940s and revolutionized the doll market. She arranged a deal for Jackie Orange for 2.5% royalties on the $7 wholesale price of the dolls, along with allowing Orms to sell the dolls for herself. The Patty Joe doll was first mentioned on August 9, 1947, with an order coupon that displayed Orms' home address. On August 30th, the Pittsburgh Courier's Chicago edition ran a front-page article on the doll. It was advertised from $2.50 to $9, with Orms painting the faces of many of the dolls herself, a first for any doll in its comic strip creator, she would, while also promoting the doll in the comic strip. The Patty Joe doll was marketed to upper-class families considering the price and was noted for having hair that could be cleaned and styled. 
The doll was admittedly lauded for its quality and societal needs, specifically by the Negro Digest in 1947, though the magazine did make a comment about the price. They would later design a companion doll, Benji. This venture would end in December of 1949 over a lawsuit and unpaid bills. Terry Lee would continue to advertise the doll up in 1962, and today the Patty Doe doll is a much sought-after collector's item. Orange would also remain a passionate doll collector herself and active in the Guys and Gals Fantastic Doll Club, a united federation of the doll clubs in Chicago. Plus, she would soon be busy with a new comic for the Pittsburgh Courier. In 1950, the Pittsburgh Courier announced plans for a kitty page, which evolved into a magazine section supplement and eight-page color comic section insert. It first appeared in the comics section on August 19th. On August 12th, the Courier promoted that one of the strips would be Torchy Brown and the Heartbeats, being a premiere feature, complete with a picture of its creator, Jackie Orms, which is about a career woman with a social conscience. Torchy Brown took longer to create as it was an adventure strip and in color, with the schemes worked out and sent to the Smith Man Syndicate in New York, who also worked with black and white original strips. They were made to carry yellow, red, and blue and black ink, which was printed over the strip. This was a revival of the character from Torchy Brown and Dixie in Harlem. Torchy would later morph into Torchy Brown and the Heartbeats before becoming Torchy and the Heartbeats, of which Jackie Orange would produce over 200 comics. Like her previous female characters Candy and Ginger, Torchy was naturally gorgeous and the Courier would capitalize on this when it created paper dolls to the character called Torchy Dogs. It became an adventure script with Torchy journeying to the jungle and even becoming an environmental heroine, tackling the then little-talked-about topic of environmental racism. This was something that readers from the south side of Chicago could relate to, as their neighborhood was frequently used by the more affluent white neighbors as a dumping ground, with Torchy taking on factory polluting in Southville. As Orange would later describe the character, Torchy was anti-anything that was smelly. It became known for its more realistic style, with Torchy becoming a pin-up character. Heartbeats would continue until 1954 with the final strip having Torchy marrying her longtime love interest, Dr. Hammond. With the strip ending in 1956, Orange would retire from cartooning, dedicating her artistic skills to murals and canvas painting afterwards. In 1957, Jackie Orange's husband Earl became the manager of the Parkway Furniture Company in Lake Meadows Shopping Center, and he and Jackie would take up residence in an apartment on the Lake Meadows complex. Jackie would later serve in the Clarence Darrell Community Center for board for 15 years, which provided recreation and education and counseling for the residents of the Chicago LeClaire Courts housing projects in the surrounding area. In 1962, it served up to 25,000 children with the Orange providing the art, including a portrait of Darrell to support the center. In 1969, Jackie Orange started the Joseph Jefferson Fellowship Awards for the Chicago area. And by the early 1970s, she supported the Disabled Museum and, like her comics, reflected her progressive and community ideals. Meanwhile, her husband Earl returned to banking as an investigator for the Drexel National Bank, while Jackie continued to do commissions for paintings and still lifes. In 1976, Earl Orms died, and in 1980, Jackie Orms moved back to Chicago from Durham, North Carolina, where they had lived since 1960. Jackie Orange would suffer from rheumatoid arthritis later in life, ending much of her artistic endeavors. However, Orange remained active as much as she could, attending dog club meetings if she could get a ride. Jackie Orms passed away on December 26, 1985, from a cerebral hemorrhage, with her remains conveyed to Salem to be laid to the rest next to her husband Earl in the Orms family plot at Hope Cemetery. After her death, Jackie Orms would receive numerous post-ominous honors. 
The Zelda Orms Apartments, the senior housing building in Chicago, is named after her, and she was inducted into the National Black Journalist Hall of Fame in 2014. In 2018, Jackie Owens was posthumously inducted into the Will Eisner Hall of Fame on September 1, 2020. She received a Google Doodle on the website's homepage in her honor. Of course, Jackie Orange's greatest legacy is being America's first black female cartoonist, blazing a trail for all those that have followed her after her. Whether in her innovative cartoons themselves or branching out into doll making, Orms set a standard for all to follow while overcoming this racism and sexism of her day. She was truly a legend in the comics world. I would like to thank the chief source for this episode, Jackie Orms, the first African-American cartoonist by Nancy Goldstein, a great in-depth biography of the legendary cartoonist which includes some great reprints of her comics. A must-read for any comic strip fan. My name is Mark McCrane. I'm the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. I'm Dan Klink, co-host of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives features programming trends from the 1966 television season all the way through the last hurrah of the early digital age of the 1990s. On the show, if it's animated, we talk about it. Order your signed copy today at tbsool.com. Listen to the podcast at esonetwork.com and all podcast platforms. And now is July 22nd, uh, 2021, time for the favorite comic of the week, Nightwing, number 82, by writer Tom Taylor, along with uh, pencilers Bruno Redondo, Rick Leonardo, and Neil Edwards, which uh, continues off the insane cliffhanger from the last issue in which uh, Dick Grayson Nightwing learns he has a half-sister, Melinda Zuko, and uh, they do a great job uh, retconning uh, his origin along with the Graysons, explaining just where exactly she came from. Taylor does a great uh, job retconning the origins of uh, Dick Grayson and the Graysons and explaining where Melinda Zuko came from, her relationship to Tony Zuko, of course, who was the mobster who had Dick Grayson's parents killed, along with how she is the half-sister of uh, Dick Grayson. Without insulting their memory, don't worry, uh, Dick Grayson's dad didn't cheat on his mom or anything like that. It's actually done very artfully. In fact, his parents come off really cool in this uh, in this uh, issue, as it shows that before uh, Batman got a hold of Dick Grayson... Uh, Looks like uh, they taught the, the, their future boy wonder a thing or two. And the combined art of uh, Redondo, Leon- Leonardi, and uh, Edwards does a great job in both the present and flashback stories explaining the or- what's going to be the origin of Melinda Zuko. So, all in all, this is a great and exciting new chapter in the character Nightwing, who's one of the, one, easily one of the best of uh, DC characters. and Sometimes underrated because he's always been Batman's shadow, but he's always been a great character in his own right. And in many ways, he's He's a better hero than Batman, thanks to Batman raising him, because thanks to him raising him properly, he became up to be a fully functional adult. And it's like some, there's also some great Batman references here, too. Like, of course, as pointed out with the cliffhanger, when he gets uh, captured, well, uh, sure enough, the whole Bat family shows up to come save him. And that's a really great, uh, neat, neat detail as well, because you always think, wait, where are the other superheroes at when someone gets caught? And this one shows, uh, no, they're around. But yeah, all in all, Tom Taylor has been killing it on this uh, his new run on Nightwing. Just a great read in general, so you definitely pick it up. And with that, uh, I have to conclude uh, Season 4. I have a run out of material. I am currently working on Season 5 with some new material, biographies and histories and so forth. But uh, next, join me again next week. I'll be starting a new uh, run on the classics and maybe some other things. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself. Good comic book.